0: morning we're going to be in John chapter 20 today if you want to open your Bibles there Um, we have been in the book of John for almost all of this year and today we are concluding this life with God series that we've been in and looking at how John's testimony about Christ um Appeals both to the deity of Christ and life lived with him. The key in John is seeing this life with God in every area. He walks through places in our work, in our desires, in our community, in our faith. And even as we're going to see today, in the midst of our doubt, that God is with us. So let's read together John chapter 20. Verses 24 to 31. And it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. till so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you with great expectation for what you will do today. God, I thank you for this journey in your word in the book of John Thank you for the promises we have received in them, God. Thank you for this this picture of life lived with you, that you dwell among us. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit, God. I ask just a fresh anointing to fall on us, your people gathered today. And God, no matter what we brought in with us, God, any amount of doubt, skepticism, fear, disappointment, Lord, you are not afraid of it you are not ashamed of it i believe god you will meet us here in it today so let it be done as your word says in jesus name amen have you ever struggled with doubt when noel my wife and i met each other we were freshmen in college 18 19 years old and we start dating, and you know, at this life stage, you don't have a lot of uh, life history to kind of share and get to know each other. So we're, you know, talking about where did you grow up, and uh, what was your family like, and what sports did you play, and things. And then we start getting into, like, the deep stuff. What TV shows did you watch <laughs> growing up? Like, what were you into? And Noel and I are a product of the 80s. We... Um, Grew up watching shows like Different Strokes and Family Ties, The Wonder Years. Most of you have no idea what any of those are. <laughs> but then there were some like real jewels of the 80s on TV and movies. Uh, one of these that we both, that this one of the ways we knew this was going to work. We, um, there was a show in 1981 called The Greatest American Hero. I was so into this show, all right? Typical, like, 80s movie. It's uh, this, this teacher in L.A. finds a space suit dropped by aliens uh, that he puts on it, and he can fly, and he's superhuman strength, all this really cool stuff. So we were both totally, oh, you like Greatest American Hero? Oh, I like Greatest American Hero. Oh, this, this is great. And then, like, next level, there was this movie, 1981, same year that we were both totally into called Condor Man. <laughs> Condor Man. And we're both totally into Condor. You like Condor Man? Oh my gosh, I love Condor Man. And we're like reciting lines back to each other and this is like this is like a match made in heaven. Literally God is like just <laughs> blessing us and like opening, you know, the doors to this relationship. So into it. And then I say, "Man, can you believe the same actor that was in the greatest American hero, there's the same guy who was Condor Man. Isn't that amazing? Like, what a year for him, 1981. <laughs> and she gets stone faced. What? That is not the same actor. <laughs> and now we're on rocky ground. We're on rocky territory here. I'm like, but I'm not giving in, okay? Uh, listen, I know that Condor Man was the greatest American hero. There's no doubt in my mind that that is true. no, that is absolutely not true. And we go back and forth. And uh, finally, the the weekend comes, I go to meet her family. And we go, you know, up to to Park in in Southern California, where she lived. We drive up there, and and she introduced me. Hi, this is my boyfriend, uh, Dave. He believes that Greatest American Hero and Condor Man are the same person. (laughs) He believes what? (laughs) His family is just, like, indignant. And, like, pretty soon I'm at the table, surrounded by eight people, just grilling me. On Condor Man, just grilling me on Greatest American. Like, how do you know that? How can you prove that? Listen, I'm gonna give you names, blah, 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 blah. And now my doubt becomes resistance. And I say, I will not believe. <laughs> Unless I see these two men before me, I will not believe. And this goes on for years. Fast, 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 uh, fast forward five years, we are um, at our rehearsal dinner the night before our wedding. Okay, And uh, it's a great night, we got all our family and friends, uh, just like sweet, sweet time, people are like roasting us and telling stories, and we're watching like videos and stuff, it's great. And then at the end of it, her family brings out a cake, and they set the cake in front of Noelle and I, and on top of the cake is a picture, not exactly like this, but almost like this. <laughs> night before our wedding. This is the most important thing to them. And I say, I don't believe it. <laughs> You've altered something here. This is not correct. I don't believe it. So um, listen, you guys, this is 20 years in the making. Noel, you were right. <laughs> OK, you were right. But the Dodgers still suck. So <laughs> take that. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe you can relate, okay, silly story. Maybe you can relate to doubt that becomes like resistance, like your heart becomes hard. Um, this was certainly the case for our man, Thomas, that we read about today. Let's get some context because we're going to walk through the narrative of Thomas's experience that John obviously finds very important because he gives it to us at the close of his testimony. At this point, Jesus has been crucified in a brutal death that leaves his disciples just scattered, running for their lives. And after Christ's burial, there is this rumor going around town that he has risen, that he's not dead. He has come out of the grave and he lives again. And even that some people have seen him and even some have spoken with him. This is obviously a fantasy. It must be. This does not happen in real life. Who would believe such a thing? Obviously, Jesus' disciples were having a hard time believing this because they have locked themselves away in a safe house, hiding from their accusers. Put yourself, for a moment, would you, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Everything you hoped for, The person you had counted on most, you had believed in fully, has been completely shamed and destroyed before your eyes. What just happened? Was any of that that we just lived, was any of that real? Did we really see what we thought we saw? Did we hear him correctly all these years? You've just thrown away three years of your life for what? How will you piece this life back together again? So often, we read narratives in scripture and we feel for some reason that in this time, Jesus' followers must have been much different than us. Often we think, you know, those people maybe just weren't as sophisticated as we are ourselves. This is pre enlightenment, these people don't have even basic education. Most of them were fishermen, much less a master's degree from a major U.S. university like most of you do. But here's the deal. This doesn't make dead people coming alive any more normal. That doesn't make it normal. Okay? The equation is still true. Dead people coming alive equals not normal for them and for us. It was not culturally like, normal for people to come out of the grave. It was just as shocking for them this was just as hard for them to believe as for us we know this because they are hiding they have locked the door in a dark place probably with no windows where people can peer in a quiet place where people would not hear them where they it's a place they could not be found where they would piece together their lives and figure out how to move forward they're not out street evangelizing They are not proclaiming this great news, Jesus is risen. They are struggling with it. Exactly the way I imagine I would be if this happened today. Utterly confused in a state of disbelief, fearing for my life. And in this place of disbelief and fear, in this locked room of doubt, in a space of utter darkness enters the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and his first words to them, peace be with you. From the beginning of time, the very presence of God brings peace into the world. Whether it is in the forming of God's creation, over the chaos in the beginning, his presence brings order. Or on the sea with his disciples when the the storm is just raging and disciples fear for their life. A word from Christ brings peace. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And he brings peace. I pray that's a comfort for you today. Whatever it is you brought here. Any chaos of your life. Any fear. These words are for you. Peace be with you, Christ says. Of course, their lives have become utter chaos since Christ's arrest in the garden. Everything seems to be lost. Everything they ever believed has been challenged. And yet, here enters Christ with a gift of peace. His peace on them. Now, we've already talked about this portion of scripture, so I don't want to stay here very long. But it's important to remember something. There are ten disciples here. Christ appears to them miraculously through a locked door. He sends this greeting of peace to them. And then he breathes life, his Holy Spirit upon them. And then he's gone. And these ten are left in wonder, in hope, in celebration. The light of the world has come into their personal darkness. Now notice the head count here. There were 10 present. Weren't there 12 originally? Judas, we know, is gone. He left the others to his own demise when he betrayed Jesus. But where is Thomas? Where is Thomas here? Scripture gives us zero explanation as to where Thomas is at the arrival of Christ. Is he off doing important business? Is this a smoke break? Is he in the restroom? We don't know. We don't know. There's no reason given. But there are two things we can be sure of. This is not an accident. This is not an accident. Jesus knows what's going on. He could have waited until Thomas was back in the room. There was a reason Jesus appeared while Thomas was gone. That's the first thing we know. Secondly, we know that Thomas is hurt. This does not sit well with him. Now, we don't know a lot about this man, Thomas. He's been given the moniker doubting Thomas, but I don't know that that's very fair for him. We only, uh, he's only mentioned in John's gospel two other places. The first is when Jesus is preparing to go to Lazarus, who is dead, And Thomas says to the other disciples, let us also go that we might die with him. This is hardly the words of a doubting man, a fearful man. If anything, Thomas seems to be completely loyal to Christ, willing to walk into his own death sentence. Not a doubter. Later, while Christ is explaining He must leave the disciples. He's going to prepare a place for them. And they will know the way to go. Thomas replies, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know where you're going. And I certainly don't know how to get there. Here Thomas sounds confused, yes. But a doubter? I don't think so. What we do see in this story in particular, John chapter 20, is that Thomas is a hurt skeptic. So my personal guess is that Thomas is an Enneagram 6. The Enneagram, if you're not familiar with it, is a personality test. Nine different personality types, all interconnected in some way. So why do I think that Thomas is an Enneagram 6? Because I'm an Enneagram 6. Here's the description, the title given to Enneagram 6. The loyalist, the doubter, but most often the skeptic. As I read this account of Thomas, I completely identify with his experience. The man steps out of the room for just a little bit, maybe a day, we don't know. He's only gone for a short time, and in whatever that amount of time is, he misses the most important moment in human history. (laughs) And the Enneagram 6 response is, of course I did. (laughs) Of course I did. Peter, you needed the fish and the rice, right? You really needed that, didn't you? So I go get it, and I miss the most important moment in human history. Sure, that would happen. So Thomas's response is not surprising to me. I can identify with that. His response is very, very personal when he answers the disciples. It moves from this deep place of hurt in his heart, this deep place of disappointment. Notice Thomas' response. He doesn't say, you guys, this just doesn't make a lot of sense what you're saying. He doesn't say, let's be logical here. He doesn't say that. Thomas's response is deeply personal to him. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. Not, I wish I could believe, guys. Not, gosh, that's hard to believe. No, Thomas is stomping his foot Making a decision I will not believe. Thomas is hurt. He gave just as much of his life following Jesus as the others had. He made the same sacrifices. He counted the cost, willing even to go to death. But he was forgotten. He was left out. And his heart is so bitter, I will not believe. Why is this so important for us to see? Why did John leave this story at the conclusion of his gospel? I think because in this is such an important part of our life with God. If you are honest, there are places where you have been disappointed with God at one point or another. Many of us resent God for certain circumstances of our life. I sit with so many people who are resentful and even skeptical of the character of God. You say he's good? How can he be good? And that is why. We should take special notice of how the rest of Thomas' story goes from here. This is a gift to us that John is giving. If you're trying to create a new religion and get people to buy in, you probably don't finish with this story of a skeptic who doubts straight up the existence of the guy he's following. You probably leave that out. But This is important. This is a gift to us. So let's look at how... Christ responds to Thomas's rigid demands. What happens after this point? I will not believe. The first thing we see is that Thomas does not leave his community. Thomas doesn't bail. Too often when people are journeying through seasons of doubt and disappointment and skepticism, their first inclination is to get away from the church. Get away from the family of God. Can you imagine... How hard this week must have been for Thomas to just sit in this locked room with his buddies who are just celebrating and laughing, crying with tears of joy. Can you imagine what it would be like to just sit there for a week as they tell the story over and over and over how painful that must have been? But Thomas doesn't leave. He doesn't bail. He stays present to his spiritual community. And in the reverse, at the same time, just as important, Thomas's community does not reject him for his voice of discontent. Let's be honest, the church does not have a very strong history of loving people through their doubt, disappointment, and skepticism. We don't have a good history of that. If you've ever been one of these people, walking through doubt and skepticism, you've probably seen the ugly side of the church where some people try to reason away your skepticism. Just think, you know, logically, they say. Still others get into problem solving. Well, are you reading your Bible? Well, did you pray this morning? Well, did you go to church? At worst, at the very worst, other believers condemn skeptics for their doubt. How could you not believe? I don't know that God is in you. My plea to you is that we would take a page out of the disciples' book here. And we would receive each other. Regardless of where we are in this walk. Even when we doubt. That we would accept a brother or a sister that they might stay in their pain and doubt. And we might walk with them on their journey. If they want help, they will ask. Don't force answers on them. Love on them. Care for them. Be present to them. This is what the disciples do. So two things happen right off the bat with Thomas. Thomas doesn't bail and the community doesn't reject him. Let's remember that. They stay the course together. We need each other. And this brings to light a good question that we should be asking. You're probably asking yourself now Is it a sin to doubt God? Is doubting God a sin? There are commentators, as I prepared for this and read several commentaries, there are some commentators. Who said that Thomas is wicked, Thomas is weak, even that Thomas is stupid for a statement of doubt. They point to certain places where we see that anger of God in his people when they lack faith. When they're they're a disappointment to him. When they reject his instruction to other means of worship. They point to those things. But our lack of faith and disobedience the same as doubting? I would challenge you on that. Our lack of faith and disobedience the same as doubting. What I suggest is we look at how Jesus deals with Thomas's doubt. Let's just look to Jesus. For a week, the disciples stay gathered in that same room, and then something remarkable happens again. One week later, Christ appears again. And how does he appear? The exact same way. It's the exact same narrative. He appears in the middle of them. Comes through through a locked door. He greets them with the words, peace be with you. Thomas is getting redeemed. Christ is giving him a redeemed experience of him. He's getting what he most hoped for. And then, how does Jesus deal with Thomas's doubt? Right after he says, Peace be with you, it says Christ turned to Thomas and he said, Repent, you sinner. Get down on your knees and beg for my forgiveness. How dare you question me? Did I read that wrong? Gosh, isn't that a bit of what we expect? Jesus has literally gone to hell and back. And Thomas gives this entitled bratty, if I don't get this isn't this and I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. <laughs> we would expect for Jesus to say, peace be with you, turn to Thomas and slap him. That's what we would expect. That's what I would expect. Maybe you guys are just a lot nicer than me. But instead, Jesus does something absolutely remarkable How does Jesus deal with doubt? In compassion and in grace, Jesus turns toward Thomas and makes himself completely available and vulnerable to him. No condemnation. No rejection. No guilt. Jesus meets Thomas right in the midst of his doubt. If you grew up in the church, you've heard this account so many times, I'm sure. And after a while, it can be hard to imagine what this encounter must have been like. So I want to show you a painting that captures this really, really well. This is a 16th century painting by Italian artist Michelangelo Marisi de Caravaggio. In this painting, you can see Jesus completely open to Thomas. He isn't angry. He isn't condemning. Instead, he is fully present, available, and vulnerable to Thomas. I want to just pause for a moment. Just stare at that painting, please. Soak it in. I personally love how uh, Jesus is taking Thomas' hand and almost leading him to touch the wound at his side. As if to say, here I am. If This is what you need from me. Here I am. In the scriptures, we don't know if Thomas actually touches Jesus. It doesn't tell us. There are no details after Jesus invites Thomas to touch his hands and his side. But whatever that interaction was, whatever happened there, it was enough to win Thomas. Thomas makes this unique and profound declaration. It's short, but it is powerful. My Lord, my God. Notice that this is also deeply personal. It's a personal response to match Thomas's personal demands from earlier. Remember, I must put my hands in the nail marks. I must put my finger in the wounds. And his response to Jesus, my Lord, my God. Thomas' response is also deeply meaningful. Because this is the first time in any gospel that Jesus is referred to as God himself. This is a declaration of Christ's deity that should remind us and bring us all the way back to the beginning of John. Do you remember where we started? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The author John is coming full circle on his declaration of Jesus Christ as God in human form. For John, Jesus is not just a wonderful human being, although he is that. He is not just a good teacher on par with wise teachers throughout history, although he is that. Thomas declares Jesus both Lord and God. Greatest of earthly kings, one with God in heaven. Ironically, Jesus and Thomas have had this conversation before. Back in John 14, where we we talked about this, when Thomas is so confused, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and you'll know the way to go. And Thomas says, we don't know the way, I don't even know what you're talking about. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And with Thomas' declaration, my Lord, my God, the author John leaves us then with Jesus' final beatitude. His final blessing to Thomas and to us. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen And yet, have believed. There are a few things in the scriptures that bring Jesus more joy than those who show genuine faith. You might remember the Roman centurion whose servant was dying, and he goes to Jesus, Would you heal him? And Jesus says, Yes, I'll come to your house. He says, Listen, I know how this works, Uh, I, I know how I rule and run my men. If I say go and do it, they do it. So just say the word. You don't need to go to my house, Jesus. Just say the word and I know it will be done. And Jesus rejoices in this man's faith. I haven't seen this much faith in all of Israel, he says. Remember the woman with the issue of blood. She knew if she could just get close enough to put a finger on Jesus that she would receive healing And when she is confronted, Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Jesus loves people of faith who trust him for who he is and don't demand signs and wonders and miracles to prove it. We don't know why, but for some reason Thomas was given this special privilege. Jesus met Thomas exactly the way he asked for so that he would believe. And we can become jealous of Thomas's privilege. Wouldn't we all believe in Jesus? Like if he just showed up in your kitchen, then I would then I could believe, right? If he just appeared to me in my workplace, I would totally believe. Not so. Not so. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus rebukes those who keep asking for more and more miracles and signs of his divinity so that they could believe. The miracles rarely ever make long-term believers out of the Israelites or the later followers of Jesus. It doesn't work that way. But Jesus says he has a special blessing for those who believe without seeing. God cherishes these people. Listen to what uh, Rabbi Simeon Ben-Lakish says. A later convert is more precious before God than those crowds who stood on Mount Sinai. If those people had not seen the thunder and the flames and the lightning and the quake of the mountain and had not heard the sound of the trumpet, they would not have submitted themselves to the dominion of God. But the later convert, us, has seen none of these things. And yet he comes and surrenders himself to God and takes upon himself the yoke of his will. Can anyone be more precious than he? So often we can imagine if we experience God the way that the people of the Bible experience God, then believing would be so much easier. But if you read the whole of scripture, that just isn't the case. The Old Testament is riddled with God's sorrow over an unbelieving nation that looked to other gods and idols. Even from miracle after miracle. The gospel tells of religious leaders and lay people alike following Jesus everywhere he went asking for more signs and wonders. Asking for him to perform. But miracles and signs might make adoring fans. But they do not make lifelong believers. So what are we to do? John concludes in his gospel by stating the purpose and intent of his testimony. This is where John finishes. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. John seems to be confident that what is contained in this account is enough. Enough to satisfy us and allow us to believe in Christ. The sole purpose for John and for Jesus is that we might believe so that we might have life. If you remember at the beginning of John, the author said that Jesus was the light of the world. And that where the light shines in darkness, darkness cannot overcome it. So, meditate on this, please. Belief leads to life. Life leads to light. Light overcomes darkness. Belief leads to life. Life leads to light. And the light of the world overcomes all darkness. So today if the darkness you face is fear of any kind take heart Jesus disciples were locked away in a room of fear and Jesus met them right in the middle of them in their fear and he gave them hope the darkness could not overcome him If the darkness you face is doubt, hurt, skepticism, please take heart. Thomas was full of doubt and skepticism, even resentment and bitterness. And Jesus met him right in the middle of his doubt and gave him assurance with compassion and grace. The darkness of doubt could not overcome him.